Good morning and Merry Christmas. That's for next year. I thought I'd get an early start since there's only like 362 more shopping days. <laughs> um, we are going to read an entire book of the Bible this morning, an entire book, and then we're going to come back and break it down verse by verse. So I figure we should be out of here no later than noon on Tuesday. So I <laughs> hope you didn't have any plans. But I'm joking, of course. As Alan said, we are going to read um, 3 John, so if you'll make your way there, it's all the way at the end, right before Jude and Revelation. Give you a minute to find your spot. All right, if you're there, um, before we read this short little letter, this postcard epistle, if you will, just want to give a little background to the book. Um, we know from studying it previously that the author is, of course, the Apostle John. Um, John was probably in his 90s when he wrote it. Uh, most scholars believe it was written sometime after the book of Revelation, probably in the late um, 90s, you know, the AD 90s. Um, it is the shortest book in the Bible. But you might look at 2 John and say, wait a minute, 2 John has 13 verses, whereas 3 John has 14 verses. But written in the Greek form, um, 3 John's the shortest because it has less words than 2 John. All right, again, we're going to read it straight through um, and then come back and break it down verse by verse. But I want to point out that as we read it, it kind of seems like we're reading someone else's mail, you know, eavesdropping a little bit. And in a sense, we are, because this is a personal correspondence from the Apostle uh, John to this dude named Gaius. That's who it's addressed to. But as we're going to see, this little letter has a lot to say to us in the church today. Um, it was included in the canon of Scripture for good reason. Because you see, in order for a particular book to be deemed the inspired Word of God uh, and included in the Bible or the canon of Scripture, it had to pass three tests. Um, first, it had to be written by a prophet or an other Holy Spirit-inspired person. And, of course, in this case, it's the Apostle John. Secondly, it couldn't contradict any previous writings or books of the Bible. And as we go through it, we'll see that there's no contradiction um, in comparison to any other books. And thirdly, the book had to be relevant to all people at all times. In, any, in other words, anyone who reads the particular book all throughout history could apply its teaching and benefit from it as they obey it and apply it in their lives. So God's Word is not confined to one specific audience. And all 66 books of the Bible meet this criteria or, or pass these three tests. And so does this little epistle as we're going to see. So we're going to read it straight through, like I said, and then we'll talk about how it speaks to us and, and how we can benefit from it if, if we apply it to our lives. Verse 1, the elder, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. 
If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well. Because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds which he does, prating against us with malicious words, and not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren, and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. I had many things to write, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. Peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. All right, again, it's a short little letter, but you know, there's an old saying that less is more, and this seems to be the case with this uh, little letter. Um, It's a very focused epistle with a lot of valuable lessons for us. And as we look at the big picture, we see that the letter focuses on three different men in the early church. Um, Gaius, the generous and hospitable, Diotrephes, the prideful dictator, and then Demetrius, um, an example of a quiet, diligent servant of the Lord. And we see that this dude, Diotrephes, was causing some problems, you know, some division in the church. And we're going to address that when we get there. But, you know, sometimes we get this idea that there was never any problems in the early church, that, you know, everybody was 100% uh, committed to the Lord and to his service. But as we're learning through the book of Acts, and as we've seen in the Corinthian church, there was lots of problems within the early church. And unfortunately, uh, some of the same problems that were going on in the early church are some of the same problems happening in the, in the body of Christ today. And the reason there were problems in the early church and the reason there are problems in the church today is because there are people in the church and specifically Christians in the church. And so the question we got to ask ourselves is are we a part of the problem or a part of the answer? And hopefully we can reflect on that and, and answer that question as we take a, a closer look at the letter now. All right, verse 1 again. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. All right, so here in verse 1, John introduces himself as the elder. And again, John is probably in his 90s when he wrote this, so he is, he is sort of elderly. And uh, the Greek word here for elder is the word presbyteros. And originally it did refer to an older man, but it eventually came to convey the idea of not just an elderly man, but a man of respect, authenticity, and integrity. And then in the body of Christ, it came to define a man of courage, commitment, and conviction. You know, a man that's rooted or grounded in the Word of God, a spiritually mature man. And of course, John certainly had this type of reputation. And that's something we're going to talk about in a little while too, is uh, reputations. Um, Tradition has it that while in Rome, John was dipped in boiling oil for his faith. You know, they were trying to cook up a little deep-fried apostle. I'm thinking it must have been southern Rome because we know how they like to fry everything. Anyway, anyway, we also know that he was banished to the island of Patmos where he was imprisoned, you know, or 
or put in exile. Um, but while he was there, he, he wrote the uh, book of Revelation, so he used his time wisely. And then when he was freed from Patmos, uh, he returned to Ephesus, where it's believed that he wrote uh, the Gospel of John, and then First and Second and this epistle, Third John. So John, he went through a lot of trials as a disciple of Jesus, but through it all, he remained faithful to the Lord. And because he did, God used uh, John in a mighty way, and we're the beneficiaries of that. You know, we get to glean and benefit from John's writings, of course, as we apply them. Um, and since John lived so long and endured so much for the gospel's sake, uh, he deserves the honor and title of the elder. Again, he had a good reputation within the body of Christ, something that we should all aspire to have. All right, so here again, in the rest of verse 1, we see who John is addressing. He says, To the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, in the truth. So John had a genuine love for this Gaius fellow. It wasn't a, you know, a false or superficial love. John truly loved him. He says, Whom I love in truth. And this kind of love is the Greek word agape. Um, it's that unconditional kind of love that God has for us, you know, a committed kind of love. But it's a love that's willing to tell someone the truth. And apparently, as we're going to see here in a few minutes, where John calls Gaius his child, his spiritual child, that's exactly what John did for Gaius. Um, he loved him enough to tell Gaius the truth about his sinful condition and what he needed to get right with God. John told him the truth of the gospel. John loved him enough to tell him the truth. And you know what? Truth and love go hand in hand. You know, a lot of times we can mistake love as some uh, mushy, meaningless sentiment, you know. Uh, we can get caught up in the idea of, uh, I'm just going to love that person um, instead of telling them the truth. Instead of being honest with them, I'm just going to love on him or her, and eventually they'll straighten out. But <laughs> that's not love. That's not love at all. You know, to allow someone to uh, continue down a path that we know is going to destroy them and not to warn them or tell them the truth means we really don't care about them much at all. And, you know, we're living in an age where people say that truth is subjective. Or, in other words, they believe that something is true because they feel that it's true. You know, or the idea that what's true for you might not be true for me. You know, just follow your heart kind of thing. And they're claiming that there is no absolute truth, you know, just a convenient truth, depending on how I'm feeling or my circumstances. And so in essence, what they're doing is they're embracing Pontius Pilate's question, and it's really, it's a cynical attitude about truth, you know, where he asked, what is truth? Instead of embracing Jesus' declaration that he is the truth, the way, the truth, and the life, not a truth, you know, one of many, but the truth, the absolute truth. And so with the mindset that truth is whatever we believe it to be, unbelievers are vulnerable to all the lies of the enemy. And so as believers, we have the responsibility, but also the privilege to love them enough to lead them to the truth, Jesus, our Savior. And I want to say this too, we're about to read that Gaius was walking in the truth. And so he and John, Gaius' spiritual father, they shared the same commitment and attitude towards the truth or the Word of God. Um, they were knit together, if you will, you know, in this love for God's truth. And, you know, if you want to knit two lives together in complete unity and in a powerful way, then find two people who have the same love and respect for the Word of God. 
But it's got to be a love and a respect for the Word of God to actually walk in it. And when you do, there's no limit to what God can do for His glory through those two lives. And so imagine what He can do through the entire, this, uh, an entire little fellowship like ours if we share the same heart, you know, if we're like-minded and if we simply walk in the truth. All right, verse 2. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. All right, the, excuse me, the, the word prosper here literally means to have a good journey. Um, he's simply given Gaius a salutation, kind of like when we say at the beginning of a letter, you know, I hope this finds you well, or I hope this letter finds you well. Um, but the name it, claim it crooks. Did I say that out loud? The name it, claim it teachers, they'd love to take this verse out of context and use it to try and sell their false and dangerous prosperity doctrine. You know, they claim that this verse means that God wants perpetual wealth and perpetual health for all of his children. And they say that if we're not experiencing financial prosperity or if we're getting sick, then we don't have enough faith. You know, this junk or this lie is not biblical at all. The fact is, we're all going to get sick, and some of us terminally. Not all of us are going to have great financial wealth. I know that. Um, some of us are sick right now, and some of us are going through some uh, rough times financially. You know, so don't let them tell you that you know, if you're sick or if you're going through financial problems, it's because, it's because you don't have enough faith. Uh, don't believe that junk. They're, they want to promote this lie because they want to be perpetually wealthy. And they're getting rich by fleecing the flock, you know, through their uh, book sales or their TV appearances or, or their claim that, you know, send me $1,000 and if you have enough faith, you're going to get $10,000 in return. So, so don't buy into it. You know, it doesn't fit doctrinally, nor does it work practically. Um, like I was saying earlier, John knew what it meant to suffer. And the Apostle Paul certainly experienced sickness and poverty. And Jesus told us that in this world we'd have troubling times. But he also told us to be of good cheer because he has overcome the world. You know, this world isn't our home. We're just passing through. And the truth, getting back to the truth, the truth is that whether we take our last breath here on earth, you know, due to sickness or, or God forbid some fatal accident, or whether we get caught up in the rapture, it's only when we enter heaven that we're going to know perfect prosperity, and perfect health. You know, and that's when we're going to experience the fullness of everything that Jesus purchased for us on Calvary's cross. You know, and that's when all the sickness and poverty and destruction that sin has brought on this world is going to end. It's not due to a lack of faith. Um, it's only when we get to heaven that all things are going to be perfect, including us. You know, no more tears, no more pain, no more sickness, no more blinding boulevard traffic, but it's not until then. All right, getting back to what John is praying here for Gaius. Again, he's simply saying that he prays that Gaius will prosper in all things, that he'll be successful in all that God calls him to do and everywhere God leads him. That's basically what he's telling him. But then he prays that he would be in health just as his soul prospers. You know, so maybe uh, Gaius was actually physically sick at this time. But you see here, you see what John is doing? He's actually complimenting Gaius about his spiritual health. See that? He's saying that he prays 
that his physical health would match or be as good as his spiritual health. And so that brings a question for us. You know, if someone were to pray that our physical life would be as healthy or equal to our spiritual life, (laughs) would we be in a coma, you know, (laughs) or near death? Or would we be ready to run a marathon? How's our spiritual life? Is it prospering or is it (laughs) bankrupt, near death? Verses 3 and 4. For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. The emphasis is on to hear. You know, every one of us, we share an invaluable possession. You know, it goes with us wherever we go. But amazingly, sometimes it goes ahead of us to a place we've never been before. Um, And another thing about this possession is that what we think about it doesn't always line up with, with what others think about it. And of course, I'm talking about our reputation. And our reputation as Christians is simply an estimation or evaluation that others have about our character, our integrity, and our standing as a believer. And it can be good or bad, you know, positive or negative. Um, But our reputation is very important because people are watching us and talking about us. Now, believers and unbelievers alike. And that's what I mean when I said that our reputations can go before us to some place we've never been before. You know, you've heard the saying, your reputation precedes you, and that's because people are talking about us. And that brings up another question. You know, if we were to get to introduce to someone for the first time, you know, someone we've never met before, but they've heard about us, what would their response be when meeting us? You know, would they be like, oh, it's so nice to finally meet you. Man, I've heard all kinds of things about you. It is a real pleasure. Or would they be, oh, you're that person. Yeah, I've heard all about you. Um, I got a lot of things I got to do. Um, I got to get going. <laughs> See ya. Wouldn't want to be ya type thing. Um, but, you know, one of the best ways to have a good public reputation is by ensuring that our private lives are intact, you know, that we're right with God. And that's the definition of Christian integrity. And the reason our public reputation should be positive, especially in the eyes of the unbelievers, because how they view us could be the deciding factor on whether they believe Jesus is real in us or not, you know, and whether they even want to have what we have. You know, it's been said that we might be the only Bible a person ever reads, and so we should be living epistles. You know, Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. And so people are reading us, you know, and we want to make sure that what they're reading is healthy, you know, that they're reading about Jesus and and not looking at us and reading, I don't know, um, Mad Magazine or (laughs) the National Enquirer if we're known to gossip. Um. But like Paul said, it's only by the Spirit of the living God, the Holy Spirit, that we can have godly reputation. You know, I've heard um, people say something that kind of gripes me, and I think the reason it gripes me is because I've said it myself. Um, They say, I really don't care what people think about me. I only care what God thinks about me. 
but they usually say it right after they've offended someone, you know, trying to justify themselves a little for their, their actions or their words. And that's not the right attitude to have as a believer, you know. We should care about what others think about us. And I'm not talking about being a man pleaser at all. There's a huge difference between being a, you know, a man pleaser and being a good witness for the Lord. You know, we want to bring uh, glory to God in all things. We're a reflection of Him. So we should care what others think about us. All right, and so we see here that Gaius had a good reputation. And we already talked about him loving and walking in the truth. And so John tells him that it brings him joy to hear that his children, and again, this is uh, where it suggests that John was Gaius' spiritual father, that John was probably the one that led him to the Lord. John says it brings him joy to know that his children are walking in truth. And you know, there is nothing more exciting and joyful than to lead someone to the Lord Jesus. You know, to lead someone out of, the dar- out of darkness and into the light. Nothing more exciting than that. Except, perhaps, to hear that that person you led to the Lord is still walking in the truth years later. You know, that your spiritual child has found his or her niche in the body of Christ. You know, that they're walking faithfully in whatever God has called them to. Um, it brings joy to our Heavenly Father when He sees it. It brings joy to our spiritual father or, or to a pastor when he hears about it. And, of course, it brings incredible joy to earthly fathers or mothers, you know, parents, when their children are walking in the truth of the word, you know, and in the ways that they were brought up. Um, but conversely, it can be equally heartbreaking to hear that that child has stopped walking in the truth, you know, when they've turned their backs on the Lord. Um, it brings heavy heartache knowing that that loved one is, is headed down a uh, path of destruction, you know, after the hours and hours or months or even years that were invested in that, in that child's life or that person's life, to hear that they've gone astray is painful. So the best way to bless the heart of our Heavenly Father or a pastor or a parent is to find our place in the body of Christ and to continue walking in God's truth, you know, His Word. Um, that's what Gaius did, and it, and it blessed John. It brought him joy. Verses 5 and 6. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. All right, here John is commending Gaius about his faithfulness in serving the body of Christ. But not only was he serving those in the church that he knew, but even the ones he didn't know, the strangers. And uh, so John told Gaius that whatever he did for the brethren, he did it faithfully, and he commended him for it. And the key to any ministry, to anything God calls us to, is faithfulness. That's what God's looking for. He's not looking for perfection because he's not going to find it. Uh, He's looking for availability. He's looking for obedience. And he's looking for faithfulness. You know, in the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells us about the servants who multiplied the talents that were given to them. He says that their Lord said, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Again, he said, well done, good and faithful servant, not well done, good and perfect servant. So again, he's, he's looking for faithfulness. Um, but that's not to say that we should be slothful or sloppy in serving. We want to do all things uh, to the best of our ability to the glory of God. You know, that's part of being faithful in serving. But sometimes we'll mess up. 
You know, we're, gonna, we're not going to be perfect. And I like what Pastor Romaine said in his book about serving. He said, it needs to be understood that the only person who makes mistakes is someone who is actually doing something. And, of course, he's talking about ministry. Again, in serving the Lord and the body of Christ, we're going to mess up. But that's where God's grace comes in to cover us. He just wants us to continue faithfully serving in whatever he's called us to. And so if we say we're going to do something or serve in some capacity, we need to be faithful and come through on our commitment because people are counting on us. You know, if we fail to keep our promise, then someone else has to pick up the slack. And it takes them away from what God is calling them to do. And it can affect the smooth functioning of the body. And it can cause animosity. Again, uh, we're not perfect. Um, Jesus tells us in Matthew 5.37, Let your yes be yes and your no, no. For whatever, else, uh, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. And so that goes back to integrity. And in this case, the integrity of the tongue. If we say we're going to do something, we need to do it because people need us. If we can't do it, we need to say so. You know, there's nothing wrong with saying no. But if we keep promising that we're going to do something, we keep falling through on the promise, then we're going to get the reputation that we can't be counted on. All right, so Gaius, he had this reputation for faithful service. He could be counted on, and so John praised him for it. Excuse me. All right, the rest of verse 6 and all the way through to verse 8 says, If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well, because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such, that we may become fellow workers for the truth. Okay, these two verses combined with the last two verses speak volumes. First, they're, they're giving us insight as to how Gaius was faithfully serving the church. Um, apparently, Gaius was extending hospitality to traveling missionaries and pastors, uh, church planners, and evangelists. <clears throat> Those who were you know, going all over the place, faithfully sharing the gospel and meeting people's needs. Gaius had the gift of gener- generosity and hospitality. And, and so as they were traveling through, he'd invite them into his home you know, and provide them with a place to stay, something to eat. He'd give them some, you know, some shekels to help support them, and he'd encourage them on their journey. And so these missionaries had heard of Gaius's reputation, you know, that he was there for them and that he could be counted on to minister to them. You know, just a great thing to be known for. And, you know, hospitality is an important gift in the body of Christ. Um, it brings people together, and it's conducive to fellowship. Um, the church building isn't the only place we should be getting together. You know, we should open our homes and invite people over for dinner and into our lives so that we can really get to know each other as a family, you know, investing in each other's lives. And you know, even though the church or the family of God can be dysfunctional at times, a dysfunctional family, it's still the best family to belong to in the entire universe. Amen. So anyway, it was a blessing to these missionaries to know that they had a comfortable place to stay on their travels because the inns of that time, or the motels, if you will, weren't always the nicest places to stay. You know, just like some of the motels today, um, they could have some real shady characters hanging out, you know, some freaks. So it could be kind of dangerous to lodge there. 
Um, a person could get robbed or mugged. Um, so it'd be a, it could be a physical danger to stay in one of them. But also because of the um, debauchery or, or immorality, just like today, there was a lot of temptation at some of these places. So it could be spiritually dangerous as well. And so these Christians, they wanted to avoid any temptation, you know, and a little lesson in there for us. Um, so it was a blessing, again, to know that they could stay at a place where the peace and comfort of God dwelled. That's in the home of a faithful servant like Gaius. And again, it's because Gaius was walking in the truth that he displayed this hospitality. You know, he had a genuine love for God's people and a love for God's word. And God's word says in 1 Peter 4, 9 through 10, it says, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another. In other words, it's reciprocating as, God, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And so that's what Gaius was doing. He was being a good steward with the gift of hospitality. And he was sending them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, like it says there in verse 6. You know, he ministered to them in a manner that brought glory to God. That's how we should always serve, in a manner worthy of God. Okay, so um, in these verses, verses 7 through 8, John is going to give three reasons for Gaius, you know, and for us. Remember, it's relevant for us too. He's going to give three reasons why he should continue ministering to these fellow servants. And the first two reasons are here in verse 7. It says, because they went forth for his name's sake. Well, whose name's sake? Well, Jesus' name's sake. So John's encouraging Gaius to continue this good that he was doing because these traveling missionaries were doing it for the Lord and for his name. You know, they were faithfully serving Jesus and advancing his name to a lost and dying world. Um, They're promoting the name of Jesus because they know that there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Again, they're sharing the truth in love. And it's a love for the lost. All right, the second reason John gives Gaius to continue supporting the missionaries is in the end of verse 7. It says, because they were taking nothing from the Gentiles. And the Gentiles here, of course, refers to unbelievers. Um, So these servants or these missionaries, they didn't want to solicit support um, of money from unbelievers, you know, from those that they're trying to reach. And the reason is because they didn't want the unbelievers to doubt their motives. You know, it kind of goes back to their reputation. They counted solely on the support from the church. And you know, we as the body of Christ today should never try to solicit financial help from unbelievers to support our mission. We should be counting only on the family of God, our Christian brothers and sisters, to support the work of the ministry. And that's only as God puts it on their hearts to give, to support, just like he did for Gaius. Um, God's not going to honor any fleshly means in trying to get money or support. You know, and asking unbelievers to help out, help out only brings reproach on his name. Again, we're here to advance his name, not, not bring reproach on it. All right, so again, John is just saying that since the missionaries refused to accept help from the Gentiles, then we, as their brothers and sisters, need to continue helping them. All right, and the last reason John gives Gaius to continue ministering to him is in verse 8. It says, we, and he's talking about the body of Christ, therefore ought to receive such, or receive these fellow servants, that we may, be become, we may become fellow workers for the truth. And, you know, whatever we do to support 
the spread of the gospel, whether it's financially or through prayer or like Gaius, housing a missionary, whatever. God sees it as just as important as the one who is actually opening their mouths and sharing the gospel with someone. Um, we become fellow workers for the truth. You know, whenever we help out of ministry, in whatever way God calls us to help. And that goes for a local fellowship as well. You know, whatever you're do- doing here to support this ministry and our mission, whether it's by setting up before and after the church or holding a, a crying baby in the nursery or cleaning or teaching the children or supporting financially or through prayer, whatever you're faithfully doing, or God sees it as equally important as what Pastor Allen is doing. Because your faithful service is freeing him up to do what he's called to do. And so God sees us all as this healthy, living organism that's working together for his name's sake. You know, and for the furtherance of his kingdom. We're all fellow workers for the truth. Nobody is more important than anyone else. By the way, brings us to the next dude we're going to talk about. Verses 9 and 10. John says, I wrote to the church. But Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, pratting against us with malicious words. So he's a gossiper. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Wow. Dude has some issues. He's definitely part of the problem and not a part of the answer. All right, so this guy, Diotrephes, he was a leader in the church, a pastor or an elder. And as we look at him a little closer, we're going to see that he's a classic study on how not to be a leader in the body of Christ. But, you know, we can't limit it to that, you know, just to leadership. We've got to look at him as what it is not to be as a Christian. Um, But, you know, before we come down too hard on him, we've got to remember that God's word is relevant to all people at all times, Right? And so we need to check our hearts as we see his character flaws. And if we notice that some of the things that we see in diatrophies are some of the same things we see in ourselves, then we need to deal with them. You know, I know that as I was studying it, I recognized some things in me that uh, need to be addressed in my life, you know, in my walk with the Lord. But if we don't see anything, you know, in ourselves that resemble diatrophies, then praise the Lord. Um... But just remember one thing about pride. That is that the first thing pride does is destroys our ability to see our pride. Okay, again, we're going to break down some of his character flaws. And the first one, the first problem we see is the reason for all the other ones that follow. It says, Diotrephes loves to have the preeminence. And preeminence means to be number one or to be in first place or to put yourself in first place or to be the center of attention. Um, And so what he was doing is he was stealing the spotlight or the focus from the only one who deserves the preeminence, and that's Jesus. In Colossians 1.18 it says, And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Um, Jesus should always be first in our lives. He should always be the center of attention, the center of our focus in all things. And in serving him, we should always point others to him and, you know, never try to steal his position or his glory. But this is what Diotrephes was doing. He wanted to be the head honcho. He was motivated by pride. 
All right, again, so all the flaws that we're going to point out now stem from this huge problem. That is that God was not given his proper place in Diotrephes' life. Diotrephes was on the throne, not Jesus. And this is no way to lead a church. You know, we just read that Jesus is the head of the church. And, you know, John the Baptist understood this. Um, He had a successful ministry, but John had the right perspective. John the Baptist said, he... Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. Uh, Diotrephes turned that around. You know, he wasn't trying, uh, he was trying to increase in the eyes of the people and um, having Jesus decrease um, to the point where Jesus wasn't even in the picture, you know? And this pride or this self-promotion is the root of all of his problems that we're going to look at next. John says in verse 9 that he wrote to the church, but that Diotrephes did not receive him or receive us. But he's talking about the letter in context. So the problem here is that in his arrogance, Diotrephes is rejecting authority. Because apparently John had written a letter to the church, but Diotrephes didn't like the content of the letter. It says he didn't receive him, meaning he didn't accept what John had written. And the reason Diotrephes was rejecting John was because he felt threatened by John. You know, Diotrephes had his own little agenda for this church. He wanted to rule instead of minister. You know, instead of of leading the sheep and feeding the sheep, he was beating the sheep. He was a spiritual dictator. And so most likely, this letter that John uh, wrote was probably a rebuke against Diotrephes, you know, trying to set him straight. Um, most Bible scholars believe that Diotrephes probably intercepted this letter, read it, and destroyed it so no one else could read it. But John knew the truth about Diotrephes, and he was willing to make it known to, uh, through this letter. So Diotrephes felt threatened. He didn't want to lose his preeminence. You know, he wanted to remain the center of attention, and so the letter conveniently disappeared. Um, in his pride, he couldn't accept any biblical rebuking. So in essence, he was rejecting John's authority as an apostle and as an elder. So again, his second flaw was rejecting authority. And I guess the question we can ask ourselves in regard to this is, you know, are we rejecting authority in some way? You know, maybe at work. Are we defiant towards the boss? Um, We're on the road driving, you know, breaking traffic laws, driving like a maniac, road raging. Now, this one hurt when I was typing it. Sorry, if anybody's driven with me, you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Or at church, you know, are we unteachable? Um, Are we rejecting the pastor's authority by closing our ears and our hearts to the biblical counseling that's coming from the pulpit, either from the pulpit or or from some one-on-one counseling? And, you know, the Bible tells us that we're to submit to authority. You know, we're to respect our bosses. We're to abide by the civil laws and and respect them. And we're to respect the authority of the leadership of the church. That is, of course, you know, if the leadership is submitted to God, leading in a biblical way. But if we're not, you know, if if we're rejecting authority, we're really, in essence, rejecting God's authority. And that's essentially what Diotrephes was doing. All right, the third flaw we see in Diotrephes is the fact that he was a liar a gossip. In verse 10, John tells us that Diotrephes was pratting against us with malicious words. And the word pratting, it simply means um, flowing words, just words that just keep flowing but without any basis or fact. 
So Diotrephes was spewing lies about the Apostle John, you know, just trash-talking him. This guy would stop at nothing to get his way and try and stay on top, you know, to, uh, to remain a leader in the church. But, you know, it's interesting that this is the only place Diotrephes is mentioned in the Bible. And it's in this context as a lying gossiper. What a reputation to have for all of eternity. You know, there is absolutely no room for gossip in the body of Christ at all. No room for it. can't show me in the Word of God where it's ever necessary. (laughs) All it does is destroy another person's reputation. It's hurtful. And again, it's never necessary. But we've all done it. We've all done it. Some of us are just a little more subtle about it than others, you know. Or we do it under the guise of uh, spirituality. It can even be manifested through our prayers, you know. It can go something, a little something like this, you know. Hey guys, uh, can we get together and pray for Larry? Just so happens that he's not here today, how convenient. But I know he needs some prayer. So let's lift him up, you know. And without getting into any details, just pray as the Holy Spirit leads, you know. And I'll start. Lord, you already saw Larry going into uh, Hooters and slamming three pitchers of beer, Lord. And so we just ask you, Lord, to <laughs> deliver our brother from the bondage of alcohol, Lord. And while you're at it, help him with his problem with womanizing. Because we really love Larry and we just want the best for him. In Jesus' name we pray. It might not be that extreme, but I think you get the point. Seriously, though, if we find ourselves gossiping, we need to check our hearts because that's where it starts. Jesus tells us that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so we need to check our hearts and see why we might be backbiting, you know. Um, There's a lot of reasons somebody might gossip about another person. Um, Jealousy, you know, um, maybe they're envious of someone's abilities or recognition that they think they're getting. Um, Maybe vengeance, you know. Um, We think somebody wronged us, so we're going to pay them back by slinging a little mud at them. Or maybe they've disagreed with us about something, and so we want to discredit them by spreading a little dirt. You know what? Some people just enjoy it. You know, they get a thrill out of talking about people behind their back. It's kind of sick. But whatever it is, it's an issue with our hearts, and we've got to deal with it. And we've got to ask God to reveal to us what's wrong and ask him to help us out. Because, again, all it does is destroy. It destroys friendships. It causes strife and contention, and it can actually divide a church. All right, one last thing about Diotrephes and his flawed approach to ministry. Uh, There's a whole lot more that we could say, but I'm going a little long. I can tell by the watch that my wife gave me for Christmas. had to give her a little plug. (laughs) So I'm going to quit picking on him. Um, That is after I gossip about him a little bit more. Um, Diotrephes was dictatorial as a leader, a spiritual dictator. How so? Well, in the end of verse 10, it says, and not content with that, or not content with his lying and gossiping, he himself does not receive the brethren. And of course, he's referring to the traveling missionaries that Gaius was helping out. And then it says, and he forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. So not only is he refusing to support those missionaries himself, he's not allowing his congregation to help him out either. He's a, he's a little tyrant, you know, a dictator. It's none of his business. If these people want to help support these missionaries, it's not his money. And, you know, maybe there was some greed going on here. Maybe he doesn't want them to give because he wants his wallet to get a little fat. I don't know. Maybe a little Judas Iscariot going on there. But 
Whatever his intention, he has no right to tell them how to use their money. That's God's job. Again, he's usurping God's authority and taking the position that's reserved for Jesus. But then he takes it even further. He says, it says that those who wanted to support these fellow servants, he kicked them out of the church. He excommunicated them. Um, Diotrephes had no authority or biblical basis to throw these people out of the church. Now, the New Testament does teach church discipline. We don't have time for it today. It's another study. But this wasn't it. This isn't what he was using. This was a way for this dict- dictator to protect himself and to pridefully throw his weight around. And another thing we see here is how harshly Diotrephes treated people. Um, He didn't have a a pastor's heart for people. Uh, They weren't violating what God wanted them to do. They were, in his warped mind, they were violating what he wanted them to do. And so he, he tried to discipline them in an unbiblical way. And you know, the big difference between Gaius and Diotrephes was that Gaius loved people. He loved God and he loved the truth. Gaius's motivation for serving was love, and that should be the only motivation. But the only love Diotrephes had was for himself. He loved to have the preeminence. He loved to have the power to push people around. He loved to discipline people, and he loved to parade himself around as a big shot. But in 1 Corinthians 13.4, the love chapter, it says, Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up. Diotrephes didn't love people, and obviously he didn't love or respect the Word of God because he didn't walk in it. He didn't abide by it. And then we got to question his love for God because of the position that he gave to God. I mean, is left out even a position? That's the, that's the position he gave him. All right, anyway, there's a lot for us to ponder about this guy, you know, and for ourselves, but again, we've got to going a little long. We're going to move on. Verse 11, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. All right, since John had just got done talking about diatrophies and then immediately makes this statement not to imitate evil, in context, he's saying don't imitate diatrophies because his actions are evil. He says to imitate what is good. And of course, as it says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, we are to imitate Christ. Actually, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Um, And John goes on to say in the rest of the verse, he who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. All right, and so what John is basically saying here to Gaius and to us is that whoever we're imitating is evidence of who we belong to. If we're doing good, it's evident that we belong to God because God is good. If we're practicing evil, then who do we belong to? You know, whose control are we under? But when John says he who does evil has not seen God or know God, he's not referring to the occasional sin that we're all susceptible of committing. He's talking about a continual practicing of evil. In other words, something that somebody who does not know God practices. Verse 12, Demetrius has a good testimony from all. In other words, a good reputation from everybody, and listen, and from the truth itself. Now that's the testimony or reputation we should all desire to have. You know, to have the truth, the very word of God testify of our good reputation. In other words, Demetrius, you could hold up the Bible, Demetrius' life, and it would line up. 
truth of God. That's an incredible reputation. It goes on, and we also bear witness, and you know our testimony is true. So John's saying here, we also bear that Demet- I mean, we bear witness that Demetrius' testimony or reputation is good. He says, and you know us, and you know our re- reputation, so you know our testimony about Demetrius. You know, I think it's pretty cool that the uh, Holy Spirit inspired John to write this letter and sandwich the guy with the bad reputation in between these two guys that had great testimonies or reputations among the church. You know, it kind of makes it easy to contrast them. And we already kind of contrasted Gaius and Diotrephes. Again, Gaius loved people and supported them, loved the truth and loved God. Diotrephes loved himself, treated people harshly. He didn't want to support them disobeyed the truth. And now on the other end, though, we can contrast Diotrephes with this good guy, Demetrius. And you notice it doesn't say specifically in what capacity Demetrius was serving. You notice that? Or why exactly he had a good reputation among everybody. But I think that's the point. That is the contrast, or the big difference between the guy, these guys. The fact that they, the Bible's not saying what... Demetrius was doing is the contrast. Because Diotrephes loved being seen, loved being the center of attention, while this guy Demetrius was quietly, faithfully serving the Lord. He wasn't concerned about being seen. And that's why he had such a good testimony. You know, he wasn't parading himself around saying, look at me, you know, look what I'm doing for the body of Christ. He was humble. And people admired him for it. The Bible says in James 4.10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. And that's what Demetrius did. He humbly served the Lord without any need for recognition. And the Lord esteemed him among the family of God. Diotrephes esteemed himself. And so God had to humble him. You know, and the proof is right here in front of us. I mean, it's in the way that these two are written about in the Bible. You know, for everyone to read about throughout church history and beyond. All right, verses 13 and 14. I had many things to write, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink. And I don't blame you, John. I got arthritis too. And dude, you are in your 90s. He's already had to write Revelation, Gospel of John. Anyway, he says, but I hope to see you shortly and we shall speak face to face. Peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. What a cool guy, you know, what a pastor's heart. You know, talk about contrast between two pastors, man. They are on the opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to ministry and their approach to ministry. It's no wonder that uh, John was known as the apostle of love. Here he is, he's got a lot more things to, to, to discuss with this little church, you know, regarding kingdom business, but his heart was to talk to him face to face in his 90s. This guy, this pastor is willing to travel and spend time in fellowship with his spiritual children. I love it, man. What an example. Serving till the very end. And that's the heart of a true servant, a pastor. Kind of reminds me of Pastor Chuck, you know. And these are the guys we should imitate in ministry. They're not waiting to retire like the song, you know, a crown. Their retirement, their reward is in heaven. Serving until they take their very last breath. You know, we talked about four different people here. Three of them 
John, Gaius, and Demetrius had good testimonies or reputations. And then the one who didn't, Diotrephes. And we talked about that if we saw anything in us that resembles Diotrephes, then we needed to deal with it. We also saw that we should imitate the guys that were doing it right, you know, walking in, in the love of the truth. And we talked about the church having some problems, you know, because of the fact that there are people in the church, even jokingly referring, it, referring to it as a uh, dysfunctional family at times. But I just kind of want to quickly point out that I think that the reason that these three guys, John, Gaius, and Demetrius, were able to, you know, be such solid servants of the Lord is because of where they put their focus, you know, where, where they placed their eyes. They were all looking at Jesus, the author and finisher of their faith. And because they had their eyes fixed on him, you know, giving him the preeminence in their lives, they could look at others and see him as Jesus does. You know, they could imitate Christ in their servanthood and in their love for others. They realized all that Jesus has done for them on the cross and how Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And so because they knew and understood the love that God has for them, it motivated them to love others, to serve others. And again, love should be our only motivation for service. Like Paul said, it's the love of Christ that compels me. But this wasn't the case with Diotrephes. He had his eyes fixed on himself, giving himself the preeminence, you know, wanting to be the center of attention. And so when he looked at others, other people, it wasn't in love. He just saw them as people that he wanted to try and impress. He didn't want to serve them, nor did he want them serving others. He wanted to be served. He had no clue what it meant to be a shepherd or a pastor. His eyes would just go back and forth, kind of like watching a, a ping pong game, always fixed on the horizontal. You know, he'd look at others and ask himself, why are these people serving others? You know, what is so-and-so doing? And then he'd look back at himself. How come they're not looking at me? You know, don't they realize who I am? I'm the pastor. I'm the elder in this church. I should be the one they're serving. I should be the one they're admiring. You could say he had a real eye problem. Again, his eyes were on the horizontal, never the vertical, never looking up to Jesus and giving him the preeminence. And so I just... I don't want to close with this. You know, all of our failures or all of our flaws in the Christian life can always be traced back to losing our focus, taking our eyes off of Jesus. You know, whether we be getting jealous or, or grumbling and complaining, arguing or gossiping, you know, or maybe just wanting to be the center of attention or just sinning in some other way. You know, it can always be attributed to taking our eyes off the Lord. You know, one of the best ways to put our focus back on Jesus is by serving him, by serving others. You know, he's given us gifts of service so that we can minister to each other. Again, reciprocating. That's his desire, you know. And when we're faithfully serving each other, our focus is off of ourselves and back on the Lord. You know, we'll be too busy uh, to be worrying about what other people are doing, you know, and won't have any time for sin-sniffing or, or gossip. You know, the best cure for being a busybody is by getting busy serving the body in love and remembering that even though we may lose focus or take our eyes off of Jesus sometimes, he never takes his eyes off of us. Amen? Let's pray. 
Lord, as we've looked into this letter, Lord, we caught a glimpse of your heart, Lord, and how you would want us to conduct ourselves here on earth. Lord, in a way that would honor you and bring you glory. And like you told us through your servant, Paul, that we are clearly living epistles. But that the only way we could be epistles that the world would even want to read, even want to look at, Lord, is by the spirit of the living God working through us. And so that's our prayer right now. Lord, that you would fill us with your living Holy Spirit so that we can serve you and serve others in a manner that brings you glory. And Lord, if we've caused some problems, we ask you to forgive us now, to cleanse us. Lord, and to help us to be part of a healthy, loving fellowship because God, we know that that's what pleases you. You know, to see us all in unity and, and knit together for the purpose of furthering your kingdom. And Lord, we just want to thank you for the privilege to love people and lead them to you. So help us in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.